Hello, great men and women. It's Friday, and that means it's time for DGMH, Drinks with Great Men in History. I'm your host, Zach DiBacco, and in this episode of The Chaser, we are going to look at one of those pieces of history you probably missed hidden deep within the Stalin episode, and I guarantee you didn't see this topic coming. But before we get started, a quick note. Next week is a pain in my ass fifth Friday in May. I hate those. It really screws up my plans to cover two greats each month. So I will return in June, two weeks from today, to sing the praises of our next great man, Alexander Hamilton. But don't worry, you will still hear from me next Friday in my first of many random segments of a fifth of Friday, introducing my new guest, Latte Barking in the Background, in a fifth of Friday, Social Drinking, in which I welcome back my former guests and maybe some new ones to hash out whatever historical details we want to about our first four greats. Feel free to submit any questions you want answered on the show to my Instagram or Facebook pages. And of course, we'll have plenty of drinks along the way. It should be a real interesting shit show. Speaking of drinking, today I am going to enjoy a glass of Pinot Grigio. Why, you ask? Because I wanted one, and because, like the subject of today's show, it's cold, white, and shitty 50% of the time. So let's grab a drink with Harry Truman at the 1944 DNC. It's some history for you, a reason to drink for me. It's the history of the great men that made history come to be. The Chaser. So Harry Truman is definitely a great for another day. The man was all over the Stalin episode, and he certainly made an explosive impact on American and Cold War history. But we aren't covering a great today, we're chasing the Stalin episode. That sack of shit is still our great in question. But Mr. DGMH guy, who the hell wants to hear about a Democratic nominating convention in 1944? I mean, there were so many historical gems in the Stalin episode. Berlin, Korea, the countless battles and her heroics of World War II, the death of so many assholes. So why this? Well, first, that's a much better name, but it's still not great. I mean, my show name has to be truly great as the people we cover. Even my students call me King, but don't worry, we will figure it out at some point. Now, what the hell was I saying? Oh yeah, <laughs> the second reason we are covering this topic, because it's a really big fucking deal. The funny reality is we aren't even talking about nominating a presidential candidate. This one is all about the Veep, which makes this episode sound like an even bigger waste of your time, but I swear it's not. Let me set the scene for you. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the president apparent, essentially America's monarch, as World War II still raged in 1943-1944, and the U.S. began to meander through the presidential election process. FDR had already won three elections, and it was all but guaranteed that he would win a fourth. Essentially, once elected in 1932, Roosevelt served as president for life. And that is nothing like what's happening in Europe at this time at all. Actually, this was the closest presidential race of Roosevelt's entire career, but we will save that story for yet another day. But by the election of 1944, FDR was polio-stricken, wheelchair-bound, and of deteriorating health. His own doctors had noted, quote, If Mr. Roosevelt were elected president again, he did not have the capacity to complete the term. It was apparent to those closest to the president and to the Democratic Party that the elected vice president would surely be America's next president. 
president. So in 1944, who would be the VP was a bigger issue than who would be the P. So who was Roosevelt's vice president? Well, he actually had three. The first was John Nance Garner, who served alongside Roosevelt for his first two presidential terms from 1932 to 1940. He was a fairly effective politician, but his relationship with Roosevelt had become strained by a series of disagreements over several political issues. For one, the court packing fiasco in 1937, and for two, the budget deficit brought about by the New Deal. So in 1940, Garner actually ran for the Democratic nomination against Roosevelt or at least, well, many thought Roosevelt might run again. Many were probably thinking, though, Roosevelt would bow out following Washington's precedent set all the way back in the 1790s. Roosevelt, however, was nominated, ran, and re-elected, no doubt due to America's impending involvement in World War II. With Garner out, who was in? Well, actually, one of my absolute favorite Democrats in U.S. history. A man named Henry Wallace. Now this guy will show up at some point because I find him to be truly fascinating. Now Wallace had served as Roosevelt's Secretary of Agriculture during the First and Second New Deals, and later Commerce Secretary, but between those two posts he would serve as FDR's Vice President. Wallace was an honest good guy, he revolutionized the corn industry during the Depression and fed millions of starving people in the New Deal era and was a rational, charismatic, level-headed figure in a truly chaotic time. He would have made a solid, progressive successor to Roosevelt, but the more conservative-leaning members of the Democratic Party saw him as a dangerous heir to Roosevelt's throne if and when his long reign came to an end. It was at the 1944 Democratic nominating convention in Chicago that shit got really crazy. So how did Harry Truman, the man who upon hearing that Roosevelt wanted him to serve as vice president remarked, tell him to go to hell, end up becoming the vice president of the United States of America in 1944? Well, it is quite simple. He seemed like the least worst option for everybody involved in the process. Roosevelt knew Wallace was out, Wallace was too divisive and far too liberal. The party leaders like DNC chairman Frank Walker, Edward Kelly, and a lobbyist named George Allen, who called their plan to fight Wallace's renomination, the conspiracy of the pure in heart, had conspired enough to exhaust the already exhausted Roosevelt into submission. And it was truly their goal to see Wallace out and anyone else in. One senator remarked that he wanted his tombstone to read, here lies the man who stopped Henry Wallace from becoming president of the United States. No one loved Truman, no one thought he was the best for the job. He was likely the most controllable candidate. So what makes this moment so important? Well, for one, it created one of the greatest what-ifs in American history. For after just 82 days from being sworn into office as Vice President of the United States, President Roosevelt passed and Truman became President. So Harry Truman, what can I say? He hated communists, refused to genuinely work with the Russians in World War II, and helped drive the country into a cold war with the USSR. The looming specter of communism was every bit as responsible for igniting the cold war between the US and the USSR as Harry Truman's hatred for the ideology itself. I, like many who have studied this period, ask myself, would Henry Wallace have even dropped the atomic bombs, or would he have worked with the Soviets to end the war in the Pacific in a united effort? I don't know the answer to that, none of us can know for sure, but Harry Truman's presidency was one that saw the catastrophic end to World War II and the birth of a US-Russian policy built on resentment and distrust that persist to the present day. 
But the what-ifs in this case are not only fun, but actually kind of clear. Had Wallace become president, many revisionist historians point to the idea that there would have been no Cold War with the USSR. This may be true, but this may not be a good thing. In this scenario, many suggest that Wallace's policies might have mirrored pre-World War II appeasement, which several articles note could have allowed for the red flag to descend on Western Europe. In that terrifying scenario, I find myself wanting an anti-commie ass like Truman. But was there another alternative? Why yes. It was the Catholic-turned-evangelical-Christian labor-hating racist James Burns. This guy would take a hard stance against integration and was an all-around piece of shit. He even opposed Truman's order to desegregate the armed forces. In this scenario, I find myself liking Truman again, who sadly was also quite racist, but he seems to be the least worst option. So maybe Truman was the middle-of-the-road guy we needed to follow in Roosevelt's footsteps after all. Or was he? I'll leave that to you to decide, and really, I'll leave it for another day. And we won't be measuring Harry Truman's greatness today, but we will be measuring this glass of Pinot on the scale of greatness. So in terms of taste, Contefini makes a pretty tasty Pinot Grigio that goes down super smooth, doesn't leave one with a nasty headache, and isn't too sweet or too dry. I love this wine, and since my move to Florida, whites have been my go-to. But I'm sure there are better ones I haven't tried, and I prefer other styles to Pinot Grigio, but fuck Chardonnay. On that lovely note, I am awarding Contefina Pinot Grigio 5 points for taste. In terms of returnability, well, I have actually had this Pinot Grigio before, and it is a personal favorite. It was suggested to me by the experts at Total Wine, which for those of you that don't know, is like the booze version of Sam's Club, and my favorite place on earth. This is the Pinot I always turn to, and therefore must give it 6 points. One of the many reasons I return to this is because of the price. It comes in at under $15, which is great for a good tasting bottle of wine like this. Honestly, it has been one of the better Pinot Grigios I have had, and since I am not a wine snob, I can safely say it was worth the money. Six points for price. Coming out strong with 17 out of 18 points, Contefini Pinot Grigio leaves the show with six crowns and a near perfect score. If you try this wine, be sure to let me know what you think in the comments on my Instagram or Facebook page. Well, I kept this one pretty short, as I have limited amount of content that I can publish per month, and I have been publishing a lot of content. Today we don't raise a glass to Truman, Wallace, or Roosevelt. We won't sulk on the great what-ifs of history, that's a waste of everyone's time. But I will raise a glass to American politics. To quote the great American musical about our next great man, Alexander Hamilton, No one knows how the game is played, the art of the trade, how the sausage gets made. It just happens. It's terrifyingly fascinating to me that the American people in 1944 didn't even get to elect a president. It really makes you wonder, doesn't it? I don't blame Roosevelt, Wallace, or Truman in this story. They didn't shit all over the American Republic. A bunch of old white guys sat around a table and essentially chose Roosevelt's successor. How very democratic of them. So raise a glass to the American democratic process. What a fucking shit show. Cheers. Thank <laughs> you.